We're going to continue our series in the book of Philippians. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 11 through 21. Uh, but before we uh, continue our series, Grace on Fire, uh, before the Father talks to us in his word, let's talk to him briefly in prayer. Our great God, we do come before you. You're so thankful that we are your children. We're so thankful that we belong to you, that you came after us before we wanted anything to do with you. And now as we come into your presence, as we, uh, as we revel in who we are in your presence, we pray that you would meet us, Lord. You know every one of us. You know our stories. You know, you know what we bring here this morning. You know our suffering. You know our pain. You know those who are just, just an inch away from tears. You know those who are excited about what this week is going to bring to them. And you know those who are filled with fear. Father, you know us and you love us. And so as we come into your presence, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open up your word to us. We pray for the one who teaches, that you would forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. So we focus on Jesus today, for we pray in his holy name. Amen. Well, our text is Philippians 1, verses 12 through 21. I'm going to be reading from the New International, or excuse me, New American Standard Version of the Bible. So if you have that, or if you want to follow along, uh, here it is. This is God's holy word to us. The Apostle Paul says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of envy and strife, thinking to cause me discouragement in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for me, for my deliverance, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that Christ that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This is God's word. Well, I tell you, leaders fascinate me. And as I've read uh, many leaders, and many of you have read on leadership, I've read on many of the presidents of the United States, uh, and one of my favorite that our, this country has produced is Teddy Roosevelt, 26th president of the United States, the leader of the Rough Riders. Uh, you've probably read Teddy Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909. Uh, he served as our president. But, you know, before he became president, he resigned as secretary of the Navy in order to form a regiment that would, uh, would take part in the Spanish-American War 1898 to 1899, and uh, that was in Cuba, of course. And what Roosevelt said before that battle, before that war, he said this. He said, from the beginning, I had determined that if a war came somehow or other, I was going to the front. If a war came somehow or other, I was going to the front. That's Teddy Roosevelt. 
That's the rough rider, kind of wild, crazy guy he was. But that's the way he was. Listen, I've read on him and I understand uh, some of what motivated him as a man. But it raises the question that I brought up with my guys this week as I, as I, we were talking about, uh, about growth and the love of God and how that changes it, how his grace changes. I asked the question, why do you do what you do in the way you do it? How have you become what you have become? What influences have transformed you? And so I, I basically say uh, that same question to us today. Why do you do what you do in the way you do it? How have you become what you have become? How did Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt become who he is? I'm not sure exactly, but I know that Paul the Apostle was very much like a Teddy Roosevelt, wasn't he? Yeah, very similar. The Apostle Paul, once he met Jesus, said, if a war came, I'm going to be at the front. And there he was. And there he was from, I know what, do you know what motivated the Apostle Paul? I'll tell you what motivated, you know what motivated the Apostle Paul. It was the grace of God in Christ. And because the grace of God so affected the Apostle Paul, he said, I want to be at the front of the battle. And, and there, in fact, he is. And so in our text today, we find the Apostle Paul uh, strapped chained to a Roman soldier in a prison in Rome, probably his first imprisonment in, in, in Rome. And, uh, and he's writing a letter to the Philippians, to the Ephesians, to the Colossians, to people uh, in Colossae, Philemon in particular. And we see, we see how Paul is shaped by grace. And what happens as we will look at this text is we see that he becomes a radical. You know, grace will do that to you. Grace made Paul into an unplanned radical. It set him free in an amazing way. It'll do it, if we're not careful, it'll do it for us as well. So what I want to do is I want to unpack this text, and I've asked them just to go ahead and throw up all of the points ahead of time, uh, just to see how this flows together. And so I want you to note, first of all, from the text that I just read, a simple missionary report. We find this in verse 12a, where the apostle Paul says, now I want you to know brethren. And we know that the word brethren in the original language always includes not just the guys, it includes the, it includes the cistern as well in the, in the body of Christ. The brethren and the cistern, the ESV translates it brothers and sisters. But in that whole idea of brothers is the body, the family uh, of, of Christ. And so everybody is included. And this is a, se- a semi-technical way when he says, I want you to know. It's a semi-technical way of saying, I got to bring you up to date. I got to bring you up to speed. Because if you remember, in the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 1, Paul had been going on and on about how he loved the Philippians. I love you guys. I love you guys. You're in my heart. Imagine the Apostle Paul, a staunch Presbyterian, talking about his heart. He said to the Philippians, you guys are in my heart. I love you. It's only right for me to feel this way. He loved those guys. And so in this text, though, he has to quickly get to bring them up to speed about himself because they were worried about him. Because as we'll we'll see, they had sent a missionary to a missionary in the person of Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was, uh, we'll see him in chapter two, but he was one of the Philippians. Maybe Paul led him to Christ, but he loved Paul too. And so when the Philippians had heard that Paul was in in prison, uh, they sent Epaphroditus uh, to him. And so Paul... uh, 
Paul was in prison, they wanted to find out about how he was doing. And so Paul sends Epaphroditus back with this missionary letter. By the way, everybody know what a missionary prayer letter is? If you... uh, If you're new to Christ, we're glad you're here. If you've never heard of a missionary, a missionary is somebody who tells somebody about Jesus, right? That's simple as that. And there are missionaries here that Joe's been talking about and going overseas as well. And Joe, you do this all the time when you take a missions trip. You take take missionaries to go do mission. How many of you guys have all done mission work at some point? Raise your hand. You guys are amazing. This is an amazing church. But you've gone and done mission work but then you've also gone to encourage missionaries, haven't you? That's what Epaphroditus was. He was a missionary from the Philippians to encourage Paul, the missionary, on behalf of the Philippians. And so they wanted to find out about him. So Philippians at one level is simply a missionary prayer level. That's all it is. It's a report of how it's going. They wanted to know things like this. They wanted to know, Paul, how are you doing in a Roman prison? They want, are they feeding you enough? Have you been in to see, have you been in to see, uh, the prefect yet? Have you been into court yet? How did that first court case go? Many scholars believe that Paul had already had his first court case and it had been, uh, been a positive experience for him. We don't know. They don't know, but they think though, as they look at this text, they wanted to know, was Nero there? A lot of times the emperor would sit in on cases just like this. Claudius, before Nero, used to do it. Was Nero there? He didn't do it very often, but uh, they wanted to know all of these things about Paul because they were supporting Paul. Don't you want to know when you're supporting a missionary if he's doing his job? I do. I did as a senior pastor. I mean, is he going over and just drinking coffee? If he's do- or is he doing evangelism? And they wanted to know, Paul, we're supporting you. Is the gospel advancing or is it stymied because you're in prison? So this, it's interesting how Paul um, just flows from a simple missionary report into, secondly, a stunning circumstantial reversal in verses 12b through 14. He tells them, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that phrase, greater progress, carries the idea. It's really kind of a military term in the original language. It's interesting. Before the Roman army went to a particular place, they sent out the engineers to cut down the trees, to cut down the bushes, to make sure the roads were clear so the whole army, the legions, could get through. And and Paul is saying, hey, listen, I want you to know that uh, there's been greater progress here. The Holy Spirit has gone ahead. He's cut down, cut down the branches. He's paved the way. And he says, uh, there's been a greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. This is a missionary report. This is what we want to hear, isn't it? We don't want to hear, hey, I've been here 10 years and nothing's happened. What we want to hear is, I'm in prison, I'm in Rome, and the gospel is taken off. One, one thinker put it th- this way, his bonds had broken the barriers. That it looked like his circumstances were going to keep the gospel from going forward, but as a matter of fact, the Holy Spirit had gone so far ahead of him that the, <laughs> that the barriers had been broken down and the gospel was advancing like crazy. In Acts 28, verses 16 and 30, we see that Paul had been arrested in Israel. And in Israel, 
he couldn't get a hearing. He couldn't get a court case. And so he did what, what Roman citizens do when they want to get justice. They appeal to Caesar. And in that kind of a situation, Paul appealed to Caesar. And, and, the, and the leader came to him and said, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar, you will go. And he goes. And he's in rented quarters, chained to Roman praetorians for six hours a day. Let me tell you about the praetorians. Because these were not your average Roman soldiers. There were about 9,000 praetorian guards in Rome at this time in history. A lot of them were in the city of Rome, but a lot of them also in the outlying areas. They were all Italians. They were all crack troops, what we would call special forces today. They were the emperor's bodyguards, and in later times, they became emperor makers. In other words, you wouldn't become an emperor if the Praetorian guards didn't support you. And if you've read Roman history and the fall, Gibbon's book, The Fall of the Roman Empire, you know that there were successive emperors, and the king makers, the emperor makers, were the Praetorians. These guys were paid double what every other soldier was paid. They were all considered at the ranking of a centurion, like Navy SEALs have higher ranks, almost all of them. Same idea here. They had special privileges, and they were tied to the power players in Rome. These guys were in the elite of Rome. Isn't this a great picture? Do you you see it like I see it? Here's the apostle Paul, change a Roman soldier for six hours a shift. Who is the prisoner? (laughs) Right? Why are you here? These Praetorians, these Praetorians were kingmakers. They wanted to know the politics that were going on of everybody in their prison. And they knew in the Roman prisons, there's a lot of guys in Roman prisons who were not your average criminals, thieves, pickpockets, things like that. They knew a lot of those guys put in prison were political prisoners and eventually be set free and maybe put in in big power positions. So they were careful. They wanted to figure this out. Why are you here? I'll tell you why I'm here. Because of Christ. His chains didn't get in the way of Christ. Talking about Christ. It's a powerful situation here. They knew he was not in there because of a crime, but because of Christ and And this was a test case. This was the first time we know on record that a Christian was being tried because he was a Christian, not in a subsect of Judaism. Did you catch that? Because before Christianity was accepted, it was accepted because it was a sect of Judaism. This is the first, as we know it, the test case of Christianity standing alone as an individual religion. Do you think everybody was interested? Yeah. Have you wondered why Rome has been the center of Christianity and considered the center of Christianity for centuries? You wonder why? Here's why. This is why. Because Paul was there. Because the gospel spread through these elite soldiers. Paul says something interesting. My imprisonment is in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard you see those other words? And to everyone, what? Else. And to everyone else. Almost every scholar I've read on this text says that means that it flowed through the Praetorians into their families, into the nobility, and out into the city. It affected the whole city of Rome. Who's the prisoner? I love this. 
I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. But something else that's absolutely powerful here. Paul says that the medicine of courage spread to other Christians. He said, most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Paul's in prison. Uh, he's still in the game. I'm going to be in the game. And Paul was in, either in his rented quarters or in the barracks in Rome, chained to the Roman soldiers. He could entertain visitors. If you go to prison, I probably won't be able to see you. And, and, but let us know if you do. It would be good. But it's what we do as ministers, right? We go to prisons. There will be at least a two-inch thick plexiglass shield between us. But not in this day. Paul's talking to all these people, sharing the gospel and turning on these guys. And that made, he, he was in hot water, chained up in a prison. And God was using him. I love this. A friend of mine said one time, he said, I like getting to hot water. Sometimes makes a man feel clean. It does, doesn't it? When you get in hot water for the right reason. Um, now, what I ought to do as a typical preacher is I ought to say, see, see what Paul did? Paul didn't live under his circumstances. He lived above his circumstances. See, what I ought to do, I ought to say to you, what do you guys do? And uh, I, in fact, I've heard sermons like that, you know? Look what Paul did. This is what you ought to do. It's what I, I've not only heard sermons like that, I've preached sermons like that. And then you come to me and you say, well, I get that. It's like the guy I was talking to one time and I said, he said, how are you doing? I said, under the circumstances, I'm doing pretty good. He said, why are you under the circumstances? <laughs> I'm a pastor. I shouldn't be under the circumstances. I feel enormously guilty right now. For, but isn't that the way it is when we, somebody says that to you? Why are you under the circumstances? And then you say to me, yeah, but I just lost my job. Yeah, but my, my wife just left me. My husband has been unfaithful. I just lost somebody very near, dear to me, and I, I'm struggling. So if I come back at you right away and I say, look how Paul lived, this is how you ought to live, and we don't understand the realities of our real world, uh, we, we, we have to, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with this Pauline attitude of, of, of grace in the situation of, of, of great struggling at our own sufferings together? Well, we really have to come to the end of ourselves, don't we? We have to let the gospel continue to do its work in our life and let the gospel of Jesus Christ bring us to the end of ourselves. What do I mean? Well, one time I was having dinner with Steve Brown, my mentor, and uh, I was taking him to the airport and I was confessing a sin to Steve, feeling kind of bad about my sin. And, and uh, I, I said, Steve, quite frankly, I, I, I'm surprised I did that. And he said, I'm not going to tell you guys what it was. <laughs> Sorry. Actually, I've even forgotten what it was. So, but I said, Steve, I'm surprised. He said, you wouldn't be so surprised at your own sin if you didn't have such a high opinion of yourself. <laughs> I said, so what do you really think? You know, 
what grace helps you do is get to the end of yourself. It helps you and I see, like Paul saw on the road to Damascus, that he had nothing when it came to Jesus. Because when he saw Jesus, he'd, come, he'd seen absolute righteousness. He'd come to the end of himself. He knew he couldn't stay good enough, long enough. He couldn't obey the law. The law condemned him. He knew he couldn't, he couldn't be righteous. And, the, and the gospel, what the gospel does is it says, you don't have what it takes. And it brings you to the end of yourself. So like we sang this morning, love came down. It really did. And it brings us to the point that we understand that our entire identity has been reshaped in Christ. That we are forgiven and accepted because of what Christ has done. Because of his shed blood that cleanses us from all sins. Not from what we have done. That's the good news. And so the good news brings us to the end of ourself and makes us run to Jesus. And like Paul, we get joy then. Grace that burns deep into our heart continues to give us joy. And even then with our trials, gives us the ability to deal with them. See, grace does, grace does two things almost simultaneously. It brings us to authenticity as well as a feeling of expendability. Let me explain. Grace, grace, when the gospel of grace has brought you to the end of yourself, it brings you to, to a point of authenticity, but also expendability. And what I mean by that is that when we understand that we're good, not because of how good we've been in the past week, but how good Jesus was for us and what he accomplished on the cross. That when I come here on Sunday morning and someone says, hey, how are you doing? And if it wasn't a good week, I can say, you know, it was a rough week. I had a rough week. You know, I struggle with this, I struggle with that. Or, or I can say, you know, hey, you know, it was a pretty good week and not be playing a game. Because every Sunday, and I maybe said this last week, every Sunday when somebody says, how are you doing? What do you say? Fine. I'm fine. Good. Just lost my job, but I'm good. <laughs> I'm feeling very insecure right now, but I'm good. And so what, the, what grace does is it reminds us of how accepted we are in Christ, how deeply, deeply loved we are. He cannot love you any more than he loves you already in Jesus Christ. He's not angry at you because he poured out all of his anger on Jesus. And so I can be authentic and I can say, well, frankly, it wasn't my best week. But on the other hand, we can also move in the area that Paul moved. And that is this sense of expendability. Grace also does that. When that burns deeply, it makes you authentic. But it also says, well, you know, my circumstances are turning out for the greater progress of the gospel. And I'm really happy about that. Because what grace does in the long run and in the short run is it takes our eyes off ourselves. So that if you've been drinking, I love the song, if you've been drinking grace, being brought to the table and given a meal of grace, you've been eating grace long enough, you know what happened? You won't be thinking about yourself as much. You'll become larger. A person wrapped up in himself is a pretty small package. But a person who's been, who's been digesting grace over and over and over is like, ends up being like this. Well, it wasn't so good. Was it good? No, he probably had calluses and burns on his wrist from the, from the, from the bonds, from the chains. 
But I want you to know my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else. Amazing. So we see this stunning missionary report flowing in, or excuse me, a simple missionary report flowing into a stunning circumstantial reversal. And I'm not trying to be slick on these points, but it just flowed together. Uh, Thirdly, notice this important, steady, interpersonal resistance. After giving the stunning reversal of what God was doing through him, and how the gospel spread in Rome and transformed that city. Then he says in verses 15, some to be sure. Now here's the downside. He gives the upside, then he gives the downside. Some to be sure, preaching Christ from envy and strife. But some also from goodwill. The latter, do it out of love, knowing I'm appointed for the gospel. The former, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than pure motives, thinking to cause me Distress in my imprisonment. There is a downside to ministry. Did you catch that? Every ministry, in every age, there's a downside to ministry. There are often what we call steady, progressive, personal attacks. I've had them. I love, I love reading John Calvin on this one. John Calvin said, Paul talks about everything I've experienced. Because you've been a pastor Rod, you've been a pastor. Yeah, you've had that too. I had no idea how much conflict there was in the pastorate. I thought as soon as I graduated from seminary, I'd go and I'd get a job and I'd start teaching the gospel. I'd say, Pete, we love you. We lo-. Chuck Swindoll once said that as soon as he graduated and started preaching the gospel, he thought people would crawl in through the windows. His first church was in New England. And you know what? They didn't crawl in through the windows. Chuck Swindoll says, in my first ministry in New England, it was a failure. Nah, it wasn't a failure. He had opposition. Jesus had steady interpersonal conflict. Paul had steady interpersonal conflict. The apostles had steady interpersonal conflict. I used to love it when people would come up to me after church. They'd say, Pastor, now don't take this personally. And I'd smile. What do you want me to do? I'm a person for crying out loud. I'm going to take it personally, right? I try not to. But you say, yeah, that's. I put the worship service together. I preach the sermon. I'm in charge of this church. I'm going to take it personally. Well, that's the bottom. My friend last week was here at Orangewood when I was preaching. And he was sitting over there afterwards. We were talking. He said, he said, Pete, you told them to go out and see the movie 12 Strong. That's an incredibly violent movie. You told them to go see a violent movie. What kind of a Christian are you? I said, what's your point? I started out with a war illustration last week. I started out with a war illustration this week. Some of you are going to think I have a focus on war. I do. Because Paul has a focus on war. You read the New Testament. You read the metaphors he used, the military metaphors and the sports metaphors. And I want you to know that the sports metaphors are just military put in a socially acceptable context. That's what sport is. Have you been watching the Olympics? I haven't been watching the Olympics. I'm sorry. I'm really happy that we won in curling, however. Curling is an example of war. No, I, I don't know. I, 
I'm sorry. I know some of you like it, and I'm going to get conflict. I'm going to get pushback, and I'll take it personally. I want you to know. Listen, let me give you a truth. If you're a Christian and doing anything for Jesus, there will some, be some people that will love you and some people hate you. Deal with it. And band together. Unity solves a, a, a lot of problems when there's a battle going on. It, the troops come together. That's <laughs> the way it is. Calvin said, ambition is blinding, but it also could be, be a raging beast. And there were people that didn't like Paul and thought, great, he's out of the equation. Now I get some glory being a pastor of the church. Well, Paul says, his, his inimitable words, what then? So what? If Christ is preached... So understand what grace does is that as it begins to erode away our focus on self and immerse us in the cause of Christ. It just does. And lastly, look how he pulls this together. A simple missionary report moves into a stunning circumstantial reversal, but he clarifies a steady interpersonal resistance, but then ends with a submissive, unintentional radicalism. This is powerful. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In this, I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. How do we get through conflict? As a church and as individual, prayer, but what the Holy Spirit provides for us and in us and through us, and we simply must not stop. When he said deliverance, the word in the original language is the word we get salvation. I know that I'll be saved through this situation. Did Paul actually believe he'd be released from prison? I don't think so. I think he knew that one way or another, because look how he ends this thing. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't think he knew. Now, it turns out, we think historically, he got out of this prison, was arrested again, got back in it, and that one didn't end up the same way. Tradition shows that he was crucified uh, in Rome, as was Peter. But the reality is, is that a submissive, unintentional radical is what he became. I don't want to be put to shame with anything, but with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Grace, when it becomes a burning fire, turns you into a radical. You don't really care if you live or die. Joe sent out an email this week. It was really good. It was a Scotty Smith email, getting serious about joy. I like that. Are you serious about joy? Paul was. He could have sung these songs. He probably would have been dancing in here. Because this is the gospel. It's the gospel. The other day I was feeling uh, a little bit insecure over a ministry situation. Don't usually like to confess this in public, but there it is. I was thinking, how's this going to turn out? And I was feeling insecure. Pastors sometimes feel insecure. And so I, uh, I heard this voice. I think, it was, I think it was Jesus saying, so are you my son still or 
uh, is the cross still cool? Are, are we all right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know I love you? You know my work for you identifies you and changes your, identify, your identification that you don't have to prove yourself to anybody or to me? Ah. You know I favor you? You've seen the bumper sticker? Jesus may love you, but I'm his favorite. When you let grace percolate down, it, pull, it pulled me right out of my insecurity. Pulled me right into being a son. Pulled me right into just getting back out there. C.T. Studd put it this way. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. That's all that matters. But I can be authentic when things aren't good. And I can be given up like Paul. Grace makes you radical. So if you're, not a, if you're not a Christ follower now, sort of my question to you is, is this appealing to you? Is this kind of a life appealing where you realize that you're deeply loved, that someone else has paved the way for you to get into a relationship with the God of the universe? Is that appealing to you that your sins could be forgiven and that you could be deeply loved as a daughter or son and not have to depend on other people's approval? Is that appealing to you? Is it appealing to you that, um, that your circumstances don't have to dominate, then we invite you to Jesus. And we would put it this way, repent from the way you've been leaving, living and turn to him, run to him. For the rest of us that have been following Jesus for a long time, this, this, this account is kind of a powerful account because it makes us ask the question, why do I do what I do in the way I do it? Why am I the way I am? What, what do I run to when I'm tired and need to be filled up? What do I run to when I feel insecure? What do I run to when I failed? Where do, where do you run? Why do I do what I do in the way I do it? Do I run to food? Do I run to money? Do I run to sex? Do I run to busyness? Do I, what do I run to? Because those things I run to become my idols and I worship them because of what they provide, but they don't last. And so what this illustration in Paul's life shows us is that grace continues to percolate, bringing us back to our identity, bringing us back to our roots, setting us free. This is the way of freedom. To not have it all together. To be authentic. But also to be expendable. That is the way of freedom. You take it to heart. So will I. Let's pray. Our great God. We sing to you today. We love you today because of what you have done for us, how you've changed us. And yet, Father, we so often slip back into our past identities, our false identities, and we forget that we are the deeply beloved daughters and sons of the Most High God. And so today, as we leave this place, I pray that you would remind us of your grace 
that sets us free to not be under circumstances that would control us, but flow through us. So by your power, by your love that has come down, Holy Spirit, would you let it flow through us to give us thicker skins and softer hearts as we pray these things in the strong name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen.